0: Now, um, just a note before I start, and isn't this stage beautiful? It's just something about natural things like this, all the shiny colours and the fresh vegetables. It just lifts the soul, doesn't it? It's absolutely beautiful. Now, as a church, um, we, don't, we don't often take collections. We don't, as a whole, as a rule, do that. Giving to the Lord's work we believe as a church, is part of Christian maturity. And so we do like to teach on it every now now and then. But we believe that the word teaches we should be generous people. We should be generous. We should. All we're doing really when we give to the cause of Christ is we're giving back to the one who's blessed us with everything that we have. And so we would encourage you to be generous that way. Uh, It's not that we make appeals and stuff. And it's a joy to actually have a collection and give an opportunity for us to just express generosity to the Lord's work. Uh, very interesting. Hudson Taylor, I don't know if any of you have read his biography. Um, it's a wonderful story, but you get this repeated theme when Hudson Taylor, the great missionary to China, comes over to the West and goes on a preaching tour. Uh, and, and every time he does, a, he's preaching at a place, someone will come up to him, moved by what he said and saying, I want to give you a gift of, you know, a thousand dollars to the work that, that you're doing in China. Hudson Taylor always did exactly the same thing. He said, don't give me any money now. Go home, pray. And he said, and and you read time and time again that after a night of prayer, they came back wanting to give far, far more. The point is this, is that it's between us and, and the Holy Spirit to think about these things and to let him make us generous to the giving of the cause of Christ. And one last thing I would always say as well, I know we give to a lot of, a lot of things. A lot of us will be having lots of different things that we give to. One thing I always say to this is there is only one organisation that Jesus founded himself and that ought to be our priority and it's the church. So I would encourage you to make sure that you are generous people in that work. Good, that's enough me saying about that, and I'm sure I'll have opportunity to remind you to be generous, to remind us all to be generous many times. But uh, let's pray before we look at these uh, words from Scripture. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that it is a living word, that it speaks to us. And we pray, Lord, please help us to hear what you have to say to your church this morning Uh, and move us. Move our hearts, Lord, that we may not be just hearers of the word only, but doers also. We ask this for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, every, uh, every so often, companies release products that are unexpected. Have you noticed that? Uh, sometimes they're products that leave you scratching your head and you think, what? why on earth have they made that? Uh, this is when a, a company, it particularly, it's, it's poignant, isn't it, when they have a name that is synonymous with a particular product or family of products, and then they just seem to release something that's r- right out there, really off the wall. One of the best examples, done really well, is Araby. You come across Araby, they make these wonderful sort of, they're actually the best flying discs and frisbees in the world. Incredible products. Them, they go miles, and everybody knew the Aerobee was the thing to get, if you like Frisbees. And then suddenly, uh, uh, there appears a revolutionary coffee maker on the market, the Aeropress. And it's got all the coffee connoisseurs talking. It's the same company. Same company have made both products. They, but, but they were smart enough to keep the two products kind of separate, so that you may not even know the same company was making them. But more often than not, these complete changes of tack that companies make are not so successful. In fact, they're not successful at all. So famous examples might include the company Bic. We all know Bic, they make pens, don't they? Fantastic pens. But they decided in the 80s that they would experiment with disposable underwear. So Bic underpants. A utter flop, or uh, KFC, here's, here's one from KFC, purveyors of delicious fried chicken everywhere, who had a dabble with uh, flavoured nail polish, can you believe that? So that your hands could be permanently finger finger-looking, finger-looking good, you know? Or perhaps, this, and this one is the weirdest of all, Colgate, the toothpaste manufacturer. <laughs> One day, someone on the board at Colgate woke up one morning and just thought, I know what we'll do. We'll branch out into frozen food, frozen dinners. Nobody bought them. Apparently, nobody could get their heads around minty, fresh toothpaste taste and lasagna or spaghetti bolognese. Now, the lesson is this, is that though you might be able to do lots of other things and though there might be other things that you can do quite well, It's good to remember the big thing that you are actually all about. What's the big thing you're about? See, it's the same. The same is true in the church. It is easy for us to get distracted and to forget what the big thing is that we are all about. See, the church does loads of stuff, and rightly so. Our priorities are learning from the Bible together so that we might know God better. Isn't that a priority? That we want to worship together. As a body of believers, it's joyful, isn't it? To come together and to worship God together. And fellowship, we're all about fellowship and loving one another. That's a distinctive mark of being a disciple. To to encourage each other, to build each other up. And all of those things, don't get me wrong, they're all really important. But just think for a moment. Why has God left us here Surely we will know God far better when we see him face to face. If he took us up to be with him now, we'd know him better than reading, just reading the word to see him face to face. Surely we will praise him better in heaven, unhindered by our sinful bodies, transformed, brought into his presence, seeing him as he is. Surely we'll be able to praise him better. And surely our fellowship our our unity together will be even better and sweeter up in heaven too unhindered by sin there there's only one thing that God has given us that we can only do now that we won't be able to do then and in a sense it's then the big thing it's the big thing it's the big thing that we're all about it's what should make us distinctive isn't it go and make disciples make disciples that's the big thing Go and make learners of Christ, followers of Christ. That's what it means, doesn't it? And that is our call as the church. Don't get distracted by the other things that we do, even if we do them really, really well, and even if they're also very important. Don't let them distract you. That's the big job. Ironically, this big thing, though, is the one this this one thing that is the only, that we can only do now is the very thing that the church and we probably all know this often tends to neglect and forget about the reality is it's much easier to join a choir to put on a bible study to start a food bank than it is to talk to an unbeliever about the gospel now none of those things are wrong and then, and and because of this There are countless church ministries up and down the land that offer a service to their community. And that's what they're doing. They're offering services to their community. They provide childcare. They're providing uh, companionship, friendship, and all other kinds of practical help. They're helping people to get out of debts and, and all sorts of other really good things. But if that's all they do, then we're missing the big point. Again, don't get me wrong, those are good things, but surely they need to facilitate and feed into the big thing, the really important thing. Spurgeon was believed to have said, if you want to give a hungry man a tract, wrap it in a sandwich. And we could equally say, and I guess he would equally have said, if you're giving a hungry man a sandwich, well, wrap it in a tract. The essential ministries of mercy that we do and that we ought to do should work hand in hand with what we're really all about. And I hope this is not news to you. It's common sense, isn't it? I like the way that one church in the US put it into their church constitution. They wrote this. We, as a church, we care about all suffering, and especially eternal suffering. That's how they, that's how they constituted themselves. It's good, isn't it? It's our priority. And so I reckon it's a really great thing, isn't it, to have a harvest service every year and to use it not only to thank God for all the wonderful things that he's made for us and that he gives to us, his generosity to us every day, the things we enjoy, but to remember the great harvest that is to come and our part in it. When he sent out his band of disciples to take the good news to all the villages in Galilee, Jesus said this to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Now, the harvest is that metaphor, isn't it? Used all throughout the New Testament for the gathering in of God's people into God's kingdom. And Jesus is saying, You need to pray for that work. That's the first thing, isn't he? Pray for that work, pray for workers just as we have done, but we're also to remember that quite often when we pray, we might well be the answer to the very prayer that we're praying. And in this case, we certainly are part of it. All of us can, you see, and all of us should be involved in the work of disciple-making, of evangelism. It's a team effort. We need each of us to do it. It's something we need to do together. You need all the parts of the body of Christ, the church, the whole church, if you're going to do it effectively. We've all got to be going in the same direction. And here in these last few verses we read from Matthew's gospel, we have spelled out for us six things I want to show you this morning that we are going to need if we are going to be effective in this big thing. You ready? Let's take a look at them. So we've got six things, and I'm going to go through them as quickly as I can, but we shall see. (laughs) So the first thing is in verse 16 is availability. Availability. Have a look at verse 16. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain, where Jesus had told them to go. This event takes place after Jesus' resurrection uh, and after his initial appearances to some of the disciples in Jerusalem. In verse 10, if you look back just briefly, we read that Jesus said to them while still in Jerusalem... Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. Now, this point then, this first point is really very, very simple, isn't it? The first thing you need if you want to be effective in reaching the world for Jesus is to be available, to show up, to put it more simply. just You need to show up. You need to be there to be in the right place at the right time. Jesus told them where they needed to be and they got themselves there. They made themselves available for him and we must do the same thing. It's step number one, isn't it? Someone once quipped, the greatest ability is availability. I love those cheesy little sayings that, that, that people, people have. But there is some truth in that. I mean, if you dig too deep, you'll find it's got some problems. But there, are some, there is some truth in that. After all, the point being made there is it doesn't matter what gifts and talents you might have. They're all just academic if you're not available, if you don't show up, if you don't offer them in, in service. Now, we don't know for sure... Who else was on this mountainside this day when Jesus was talking? We know, because Matthew tells us, that the 11 were there, all all the disciples except for Judas. And most commentators think there might well have been a really big crowd here. The suggestion, actually, for, for most people is that this is perhaps the occasion where over 500 saw Jesus on one occasion on the mountain. So you know, the Apostle Paul records that in 1 Corinthians 15, doesn't he? Seen by 500, over 501 occasion. There's good reason for believing that. I mean, Jesus is in Galilee. That would have been the, the base of his operations for a long, long time. Biggest sort of following might well have been there. Doesn't matter really, though. But this was a gathering of ordinary people, just like the disciples, from all kinds of walks of life, men and women. All of them making Jesus their priority, They wanted to be available for Jesus. Jesus is coming. I'm going to be there. The reality is that generally nothing happens unless you make yourself available for it to happen. So if you want to be effective, you need to put yourself out. You need to be able to be put out. For some, that might mean uprooting your life and going overseas, like some of the people that we've just seen on those videos. But for all of us, it will mean offering our lives in the service of Christ. It means offering your members as instruments of righteousness, doesn't it? It's what we're to do. For some of us, it might just mean that we're setting time aside each day where we're going to pray for the missionaries that we know and for the ministries that we know. All of us play an important role in this, but we, it starts with making yourself available and being attentional. How often do you start the day, perhaps, by saying, like Isaiah said, here I am, Lord, send me. Whatever this day brings, Lord, give me an opportunity and help me to take it, because I'm usually quite timid. A friend, a colleague, a neighbour, shopkeeper, postman, whoever it is, use my hands, use my feet, use my lips so that I might testify of your grace and your salvation. Do you make yourself available? Be available. Secondly, worshipful. Be worshipful. We need to be worshipping people if we're going to be effective. Have a look at verse 17. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Now, Matthew started his gospel with a genealogy making a big point. He starts with David. He wants us to know up front as he tells the story of what Jesus did and said that this one was royalty. This one was one to be worshipped. Uh, By the time we even get to chapter 2, you've got the wise men coming to visit Jesus, haven't you? These great men of learning travel from a foreign country, and when they see the child, we read in chapter 2, they fall down and worship in front of him. They knew they were in the presence of one that had to be worshipped. And it's the same here with these disciples here on the mountainside. Here before them stood the resurrected Lord. Come back to life. The master, the master of the wind and the waves, the one who has defeated death, stands before them. And the right response, the only right response is to bow down. The word worship here means really means to prostrate yourself at someone's feet, to fall down at their feet in worship. Is that what your heart is doing? Do you fall down and worship him? That is to rightly recognise who Jesus really is. Because Jesus was not just a great man of God whose teachings and activities were accompanied by things that God did. No, these acts that Jesus did were acts of Jesus himself interacting with the creation, the master of the creation, the son of God, one with the father as he says he is, of the same substance as God. This is God Himself in flesh. And so notice how the second half of that verse reads, but some doubted. That's a really interesting verse, isn't it? Look at it again. When they saw Him, they worshipped Him, but some doubted. Do you ever wondered what on earth that's there for? <laughs> what does that mean? I thought about that verse a lot this week. It makes it sound like there were some, well there were some who really recognized who Jesus was, but there were others who were skeptical. You know, like, like Thomas was. They're just skeptical. They weren't mm, not, not convinced believers. But for a number of reasons, I've come to the conclusion I don't think that's what Matthew is saying here, actually. See, there's a number of words in the original text of the New Testament that get translated by the English word doubt. A number of different words with different, slightly different meanings. And this particular one's only used in one other place in the New Testament, and it means, really means, to be hesitant. To be a bit, just holding back a little bit. Some held back a bit, is what it's saying. They were a little bit hesitant. That's quite different from being sceptical. Like, I need evidence or I won't believe it. Not, that's not what we're talking about. We just got something, oh, hang, on, hang on a second. And having read what others say about this verse, I'm of the opinion that a better translation might be some, yeah, they, some, when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some, some hesitated. Some hesitated in doing that. And that's perfectly understandable, isn't it? Every Jewish adult had grown up reciting morning and evening the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And they knew the commandments you shall have no other gods beside me. It's ingrained in you as a Jewish person. It'd be incredibly hard, wouldn't it, to bring yourself to fall down before a man standing before you and worship him as God. And I think some of them were, is this right? <laughs> this doesn't feel right. But that is what they do, even though some hesitated. Why? Because because Jesus is God in flesh. Jesus really is. He's the Son of God. And it is right to bow before him. It is right to give him our worship. And if you've never really bowed the knee to Jesus, then I urge you, I urge you this morning to do so. He's the one who can pardon your sin and my sin. He's the one who's the rightful king and ruler over all. He's the one ultimately before whom all knees will bow. Humble yourself before him today, and he will receive you. You can be part of that kingdom. A heart full of worship for him, and this is why it's important, is going to be a heart that is passionate for his cause and for what he wants. His cause is to gather disciples from all nations. His cause is to bring in that wonderful harvest of redeemed souls. And do you see why it's important to be a worshipper of him? Because if our hearts are instead captivated by all sorts of other things and they become our priorities, the things of this world, making disciples will not be our passion. And we will think of 101 other things to do and reasons not to do so. Need to be available and we need to be full of worship. We need to see Jesus for who he really is, to see his cause as our cause. Third thing, submission, verse 18, have a look. Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now that is a staggering statement right there that Jesus says to them. It's the first thing he says here, isn't it? Jesus was previously distant, and now he comes up right near to them and he speaks. He tells them all authority, all authority in the whole of the created realm, heaven and earth, all of it, of everything that's been made, all of that's been given to me. I mean, we're used to a hierarchy of authorities, aren't we? We, we understand what authority means. You might defy your parents, but you're less likely to defy a police officer, at least I hope so. Most of us are, are in that category, aren't we? Uh, why? Because you recognise there's a higher authority there. And you respect a higher authority. Even with the police, I don't know if you're like me, but when I see that little label, community support officer, I sort of think, low-powered policeman, <laughs> right? Uh, and and it, you know, it, then you've got the high... You've got Sarge, the sergeant. He's the high-powered policeman. Uh, And and so there's hierarchies of authority, and it goes up and up. And so it goes all the way up to the high court magistrates, and perhaps, perhaps even the prime minister himself. But all of these, all of these in authority need to remember, theirs is a borrowed authority, don't they? They might think themselves above the law of the land at times, but they're not. They're certainly not above God's law. They're accountable to him and accountable to the King of Kings, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has been given all authority. Jesus has been given all authority. He's saying, look, I have been put on the top, right at the top. Everything has been put at my feet, says Jesus. There's no authority over Jesus. Isn't that a staggering thought? Let that sink in just for a moment. That means Jesus is absolutely, he's the only one, absolutely free to do whatever he wishes with absolutely anything in the whole of the created order, the whole of the universe. That's his authority, because he has all authority. Nothing, no one tells Jesus what he can and cannot do. That is staggering authority. And if that's the case then his command that follows, the command for us to go and make disciples is not an optional command, is it? We gladly submit to our ruling king because we recognise his great, great authority. But his authority means more than that for us. It also means, the fourth thing here, we can have confidence, verse 19. Look at how Jesus follows it up. So he says he's got all the authority. Then he says, therefore... Go and make disciples of all nations, baptising them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. See, I don't know whether you've ever asked yourself this, and our culture would want us to ask ourselves this all the time, wouldn't it? What gives us the right to go to foreign shores, to nations that believe in other gods, telling them that they too must turn from what they're doing? They must leave their false religions and become disciples of Jesus. What gives us the right to say that kind of thing? Doesn't that grate against you if you've been breathing the air of our culture? The Western culture we live in would certainly want to tell us that we don't have that right. That we should respect their cultural differences, which include their beliefs. Because you know this is the height of colonial arrogance, isn't it? to go around telling people they're wrong and that they must change. I was once interviewed on a, uh, on a talk radio show a number of years back about whether Christian youth ministry wasn't just brainwashing kids. Surely we don't have the right, do we, to insist the Bible is right and all other worldviews are actually wrong. But verse 19 connects to verse 18 with the word, therefore, therefore we have the right, precisely because our right comes from Jesus, who has all authority, all authority. Our our authority is on his say-so. He said to us to do it. If you've got a problem with it, take it up, ultimately take it up with him. And so we need to remember, don't we? We go, why do we have a right? Because we go as his ambassadors. We're coming from a different kingdom, and we are ambassadors of the king of kings. We have the weight, we have the might of his kingdom behind us. Don't ever forget that when you go to make disciples. The fifth ingredient, moving on quickly, that we we essentially need is obedience then. And it's the same verse, verse 19. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations baptising them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. If you're available, if you've made yourself available and you're worshipful, you've got a heart full of worship for the Son of God, if you're submissive to him, then go. Go and make disciples. It's a command that we must obey, isn't it? Go. But the command in this verse is actually not to go. It's not to go, now, hang on here, because I'm not great with grammar. I, was, I did British education in, in the 80s, where they threw grammar out the window. <laughs> we, didn't know what it we didn't know a verb from a noun, but I've tried to learn. <laughs> the word go here, in, in the grammar here of this sentence, is actually a participle, along with two other participles. And they are teaching and baptising. The only imperative, that is, the only command, actually, in this sentence, the only command is, make disciples. That's our command. We're told to make disciples. The the other things describe how we're going to do it. You make disciples by going, baptising, and teaching. Do you see? So we're commanded to make disciples. And we'll only make disciples if, we go if we get off our bottoms if we get out of our beds if we do things if we get on our knees people are not just this is implied in this isn't it people are not just going to come they're not just going to come we need to go some churches seem to operate on that principle don't they if we build it if we open the doors they will they will flock to us in my mind, a fishing analogy works, although I've previously admitted my complete ignorance of fishing. But this seems to work in my head. It does seem like it's the difference here between just grabbing a fishing net and chucking it into the sea and hoping that the little fishies are going to swim into it. And you might, you might get one or two bewildered specimens. Drag into the illustration of what I'm trying to say here uh, what you will. But what we're actually, this is the difference is between doing that and actually taking the net to the deep waters where the, the, where the waters are fertile, and putting the net down and dragging it through the net, taking the, the, the net through the sea, and bringing in that bumper, you know, great big net full of fishes. We have to go precisely because they won't come. And I think that's more and more true in the UK, isn't it? They won't come. I spoke to a girl on Friday night, I asked her about whether she'd considered coming to, to church here on a Sunday morning. Uh, and she replied, but, so don't, don't, don't I have to be good? As a first response. See, church is not a comfortable place for people to wander into. I know we all think we're fr- and we are friendly, we're lovely, if they could just get to know us. The problem is they won't cross the threshold to do that. There's an obstacle in their way in the UK. They, don't, they consider it to be a different culture. It's, it's difficult. We need to go. We also make disciples by baptizing them, says Jesus. It's essential here, isn't it? Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. We mustn't skip this. It's, it's absolutely essential this. Baptism here is shorthand for all that is entailed in preaching the gospel. We've got to preach the gospel. Baptism, you see, is a simple public declaration that the gospel has been believed, has been understood and believed. It's been trusted in. That's what baptism is, isn't it? In the symbolism of a baptism, we declare that by faith we've been united with Christ, that we've been crucified with Christ that our sins have been taken away, that we've been raised with Christ to new life and that we now have a living hope through his resurrection. It's all a beautiful picture, isn't it? We also make disciples by teaching them to obey every command of Jesus. He says they're teaching to obey all that I've commanded you. Christian discipleship, you see, doesn't end at conversion. Never make that mistake when you read, you read these verses. We're not to just go out and just, we're not just to go on the, on the radio and broadcast and that's it. Just leave everybody to, to their own devices. It carries on through the whole life of the disciple, doesn't it? Discipleship, becoming a, a follower of Jesus. And notice then the full circle that you get here in this verse. It's important to see. Jesus commands us to go and make disciples, which includes teaching those disciples to obey all his commands. Do you see the circle? Which includes making disciples, and so on. You see, our call is not just to make disciples then, it is to make disciple makers, do you see? The job's not done until we make, a real disciple is a disciple maker, and all of us have a role in this. Now, sure, all of us m- might do different things. We, we do this in different ways. But when writing to Titus, Paul envisages a church, doesn't he, where the older men meet with the younger men and they teach. The older women meet with the younger women and they're teaching them. They're training. What are they doing? They're discipling them. They're, they're teaching them to obey all that Jesus has commanded them and applying it to how they live their lives, It's a whole church thing, isn't it? It might be preaching, it might be a Bible study, it might be one-to-one over a cup of tea and a biscuit. We all ought to be able to pass on something we've learned to others, shouldn't we? Finally, and briefly, because time is short, let me finish here. The sixth thing, essential thing, is power. We need power. And Jesus says in that last verse, Surely I am with you always, to the very ends of the age most essential of all actually although we've kept it to the last here if we are to be effective at making disciples we cannot do it without the power that the Lord Jesus Christ himself has supplied for us he's with us he's with us in this what a precious thought that is and so Jesus tells his disciples that they've they've got to wait before commencing this mission They needed to wait for a specific event. They needed to wait for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit who would empower them to be his witnesses to the end of the earth. And a few days later, during the Feast of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit, we read, is is poured out, which is a really interesting description, poured out on every single one of God's people there. It's, it's a picture of generosity and abundance. There's no shortage of the Holy Spirit. He's not in short supply. He's poured out generously on all of God's people. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. This is God himself. And he came to live within each one of God's people, empowering us for the work that we've been given to do. Never forget that. We need, we need him. Without the power of the Holy Spirit... Nothing is going to happen. Seriously, nothing is going to happen. We're just going to be speaking, theologically talking, we're speaking to dead men and women who are unconcerned about their sin and unable to respond to the voice of God anyway. They can't hear it. As we speak to our neighbours, though, trusting in the Spirit's help, he takes his word and he applies it with convicting power. Turning hearts to the truth. He puts his finger on their sin. He reveals their problem. He draws them to the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ. The answer to all of those problems. We might be apprehensive, but Jesus promises to you and to me that until the very end of the age, until he returns to reign on the earth, we will have him present with us always. And especially, so it seems, in this work of making disciples. So do not fear, Walton Evangelical Church. Don't be timid about this. The field is white unto harvest. So let's keep the big thing, the big thing, the central thing. Let's be available. Let's be worshipful. Let's be undividedly his. Let's not get sidetracked. Let's be submissive, confident and obedient to the authority and the command of our Saviour and King. And go therefore, in his power this week, to make disciples of Jesus Christ. Let's pray.